You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to the <laughs> the very last episode of the second season of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Ending the marathon second season of PGAP on a high is my game. Recordings for the second season started in November 2020, just before I left Melbourne. Over the course of the next almost 12 months, I undertook a cross-state post-pandemic journey, which I remember almost for the semi-constant dashing for the border before it closes routine rush, as I do for the wonderful experiences. I met some wonderful people doing amazing post-growth things through the entire length of my journey. From the Bindarabi intentional community in the highlands of the New South Wales-Queensland border through to the Reseed Centre in northern Tasmania, then over to Adelaide, the city of parks and churches and, wouldn't you believe it, the city of economic reform activists. Some of these conversations were caught on recorded sound waves as a grace a good chunk of PGAP's second season. I have now settled full-time in Albany on the great southern coast of Western Australia and I'm so far loving my self-imposed isolation. I'm finally able to be still for a little while and reflect on the 18 episodes of PGAP, which I feel I can now do with a bit of nostalgia and pride. If nothing else, I've been very impressed by the range and diversity of people that have put up their hands to be part of the PGAP experience. Among the academics and experts, we also heard from locals with a different set of expertise, including permaculture, local community engagement, and normal people prepared to do extraordinary things when faced with the enormity of the fascinating times in which we live. So it was in Adelaide where a colleague introduced me to the wonderful world and work of Economic Reform Australia. On reading just one of their newsletters and attending just one of their seminars, I was instantly smitten. The guest presenter, Dr James Ward, used to be National President of Sustainable Population of Australia for a year, so I guess it is true when they say it is a small world after all. Through my initial engagements with ERA, I thought there was a collaborative match made in heaven with PGAP. To my delight, ERA took the bait of my initial enthusiasm. In late July, ERA invited me to be one of three guest speakers at a seminar at the joinery in Central Adelaide. The other two speakers just happened to be Sue Gilby and Mark Allen, both of who I interviewed at Christie Walk, two episodes on PGAP. <laughs> Did I mention Small World? My talk revolved around the practical challenges I faced in putting theory to practice uh, in the inner North Melbourne years, particularly the various local gift economy and intentional living projects that have so often been espoused on PGAP as necessary prerequisites towards uh, degrowth transition. I'm actually very proud of my speech notes for the talk and they one day turn these into a medium.com article and or an episode of PGAP. You have been forewarned. Um, the talk happened just following South Australia's week-long lockdown and I had been working up an anxiety that the talk would have to be postponed or cancelled when I had originally hoped of leaving for WA uh, a few days later. 
The talk went ahead, however, it was a surreal experience of talking to a room of masked attendees all sat two metres apart. <laughs> On reflection, just about every single one of my public speaking opportunities the past two years have involved a complicated and intricate battle against pure, unadulterated circumstantial chaos. And I've now embraced the fact that this will probably be my sword of Damocles of fate for the rest of my life. So if you're planning to invite me for an interview um, sometime in the near future, uh, you have been forewarned. So at the risk of this intro now starting to sound like a public health safety warning against me, I digress. ERA agreed to send one of the executives, Treasurer Bernard Thompson, to tell me more about this organisation to PGAP. It was recorded on site at the joinery and my usual recording software promptly imploded purely to add to the general chaos of this era. So we resorted to recording on Zoom. So you'll be delighted to know you're about to hear an interview in unmistakable Zoom sound mastering. You have been forewarned. <laughs> Damn, this intro is a public health and safety warning. Originally, Bernard's short interview was intended to end another episode earlier this season. However, it wasn't to be, so I instead decided to end this season as a double headliner. Bernard will be our first guest, followed by Zoltan Bexley, an active online alternative economic activist who lives in Woodend in Victoria and also happens to be a member of ERA. It is worth noting that neither Bernard nor Zoltan are currently employed as economists and in Zoltan's case was not academically schooled in economics. But this to me is entirely the point of this episode. I believe that our transition to a post-growth world requires some very radical economic reform. Therefore, it is essential that everyone empowers themselves with a grounded understanding of economics why the current system is failing and how alternative systems may be feasible. Economics does not and should not be the exclusive realm of academics and experts. Economic Reform Australia is open to anyone and everyone and is a testament of putting the confidence back to the people rather than appealing to an academic authority. Now, this is not to say that there is a no place for academia and those who have painstakingly dedicated their whole lives to being an expert in a particular field, not at all. But as I hope the second season of PGAP has demonstrated, conversation and dialogue in any topic should not be exclusive. And I believe everyone has something unique to contribute to the post-growth discussion. On that note, enjoy. Welcome back to PGAP. I'm talking to Bernard Thompson from Economic Reform Australia. How are you, Bernard? I'm very good, thank you. Now, when I came to Adelaide, one of the first things I accidentally stumbled upon was Economic Reform Australia, and I thought for a podcast about post-growth, it was uh, a good hand-in-glove fit. But let's put that theory to the test. So Bernard, tell us about the main aims of Economic Reform Australia and why ERA may appeal to PCAP listeners. Well, the core purpose of Economic Reform Australia is to promote the social justice and environmental sustainability by reforming the economic and finance system. So that's really lies at its core. 
And there are a lot of organizations concerned with environmental issues or social justice issues. And in some respects, they'll all have a connection to our purpose, which is make changes in the finance system or promote changes uh, that would lead to a better social and environmental result. Well, that sounds like a really good fit so far. I'm liking what I'm hearing. <laughs> good. Well, you, you could say it's not about joining a religion. There are, most people would say, yes, we want justice, something like fairness in society, and we do want to ensure that the world is inhabitable for our children. There's not a lot to dispute about those aims. The question is, how do we pursue them? And that becomes the, the big debate, if you like. Probably most societies around the world believe that economic growth is the path to salvation and the means for lifting the poor out of poverty and so on. Um, and now we're confronted with the damage that's caused by our exploitative um, economic practice. And we're wondering, well, what do we do now? There's still plenty of people who are poor. There's a lot of damage that's been done to environment. It's causing health impact, etc. And we still are sort of stuck with the narrative that the only way out of this is through more, I would call it upping the metabolism of the planet. We need more resources to fix the problem. Well, more resources creates a problem and we're a bit stuck in that loop. It's definitely one of your um, definitions of insanity is uh, doing the same mistake over and over, which we seem to be doing with this economic paradigm. So how long has ERA been around for and when did it start? And just to follow on with that, does ERA have broad community support across Australia or is there more activity among certain areas with people with more specific interests? I noticed that um, all the office holders are in Adelaide. So I was just wondering, is, yeah. does that tend to be the focus point? Right. So a few things in that question. The foundings I've been informed, because I'm a relative newcomer to Economic Reform Australia, being with the organisation for about just over, I think, two and a half years now. And I stumbled across it in a quite odd way by simply being in the room with a graphic designer who showed us an example of the process he undertook with Economic Reform Australia. And I saw the name. I thought, well, that's a topic of my interest to me. Who are these people? What do they do? And then I followed up and joined in. The story goes back to the mid or before the mid-1990s when there were some people interested in the issues of um, social justice and environmental concerns and so on. Of course, they're not the first people to think about that. In fact, you could say it's over 100 years of accumulating insight and concern for our impact on the environment. So it's not like we just woke up in the last 20 years about these issues. And they've gone through, I suppose, metamorphoses. And initially, there were two kind of hubs, you might say, in New South Wales and in South Australia. And at some point and I don't know all the details about this, but at some point the New South Wales, it was a separate incorporated association, but it folded or wound up and the South Australian group kind of expanded its reach, so to speak, nationally, as well, will be the centre for the national organisation. So it's, you could say it's circumstance, but it's like all things, it's attached to a particular individual uh, who's been very influential, and that's John Herman, and he's the editor and compiler of the uh, bi-monthly economic review journal, which he's been doing now for 10 years. And it's got a 
a mass of articles on all sorts of topics from authors around the, the globe concerned with issues of economics, how does finance work, etc. And he's at, based in Adelaide. So you could say naturally that meant that Adelaide was a little bit the focus hub and the association being incorporated in South Australia. You could say it's uh, the geographical circumstance that has made Adelaide a bit of the hub. We are keen to kind of born hubs everywhere. People are motivated to have discussion groups or events to publicise the concerns that they do that anywhere. They don't need Adelaide to do that. But it's not always so easy. Today, I mean, you might know there are a lot of people involved in quite a lot of groups, spend quite a lot of time keeping up with what's going on through Zoom or all their emails and chats and whatever. So um, we're a bit overloaded with groups of, that have concerns that we re resonate with, but what do we do about it? And of course, a lot of information is available to everybody. ERA's information isn't privy to ERA members. Anybody can access it. And we've, of course, accessed information from lots of other sites and authors. So we hope to be a promulgator, like a sound is amplified. You know, information comes into a sort, into a centre, and it can then get amplified out to not just the membership, but anyone in Australia who comes across economic reform. And I think, to say, there are other groups concerned with economic reform. It's not just, you know, ERA. I would say ERA is, in a certain sense, a fairly broad platform. It would tend to, of course, um, identify with the so-called heterodox economists and see the neoliberal agenda, as it's called, as the source of so much damage socially and environmentally, um, which, of course, leads to questions of power structures and uh, social justice that so we have in common with lots of other groups. Um, perhaps I should add that one of the rising themes of recent years is what's called modern monetary theory. And it's become really obvious to any, uh, say, unbiased onlooker that sovereign governments, as a sovereign currency governments, have no limit to what they can spend. They are the issuers of the currency. They can never run out. And when we hear that, and so to speak, let it sink in, then we realize that the decision to allow poverty is a policy decision, not a financial decision. So the government says we can't afford it. We know they either don't know what they're talking about or they're deliberately misleading us in order to constrain what we call it, social ambition, that it's not just that we have poverty next to wealth, can't afford um, aged care properly or childcare or whatever, or social services, because the issue is not the money. The issue is do we have trained staff, nurses, teachers, and so on. And I think that message is starting to get through, and ERA is a committed advocate for that message, that it's a justice issue, not a financial issue. I've said a lot there. Are questions? No. <laughs> I think you've almost answered all the questions in one go there, which is great. It's a great executive summary. But I am curious, um, how does ERA navigate multiple points of view? Uh, for example, yes. I've interviewed one of your patrons, Ted Trainer, 
on voluntary simplicity, but not everyone who may be into, say, MMT may resonate with some of the lifestyle changes inherent with voluntary simplicity. Similarly, I remember um, interviewing Lee Van Onselen from Macro Business, who is probably the <laughs> um, not really into, he said he's neutral on MMT and he's been interviewed on the Bolt Report. So it, it is a broad church, as you said, um, how those different points of view, how do they come together? Right. Well, my position is that ERA would want to uncover, promote and explain how things work, which allows us to then make choices, but not to prescribe what those choices have to be. So if an individual chooses to uh, minimise their lifestyle or not travel by plane or whatever that is, um, good on them. Uh, in fact, the more the individuals uh, assert their own autonomy, I would say that's generally a plus. ERA as it itself is not going to say thou shalt, and if, or if you don't do this, you're sinning and, and so on. Um, but we would want to point out what the impact is of certain decisions. So the impact of taxation or the impact of um, subsidies for mining or whatever, these things we can talk about, but it's probably not for me to or us to say what the, the employees at a mine should or shouldn't do. And I think the same question that perhaps you want to raise or note with the Sustainable Population Australia, which has a, a particular concern about the impact of population on the environment, et cetera, or on the access to the available resources. The exec is two-thirds spa members, I notice. In fact, it's three spa who well, got me onto ERA. So I was there you go, but it's not a requirement. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I, I understand that that is a, a legitimate concern. The question about what one does with one's concerns becomes, the, well, what are the options? What's my freedom to influence? What might I want to recommend to those who say, yeah, well, what are we going to do about it? Because there's lots of problems. We agree these are problems, but the what to do about them is where it all gets rather more complicated and potentially argumentative. And also it's not straightforward what to do about it. And I think that applies to a lot of policy proposals on the economic side, such as, for example, universal basic income versus job guarantee. There are positions advocated for, sometimes a bit what I would call suggesting they will resolve the necessary problems, but often, of course, it's not straightforward. I think the, uh, an important role ERA can offer or play is to stimulate discussion, raise the topics, inform the discussion, uh, get people thinking about things. So we do see as there are options but maybe we have to choose A here and B over there, or we have to start with this and move towards that. There may be pragmatic issues, or there may be simply questions of opportunity. Some people have networks they can work through, other people don't. Some people might have resources they can apply, other people don't, uh, and so on. So I personally am not one too keen to prescribe what others should or shouldn't do but simply to try and understand. Well, it's good that you can hold multiple points of view and, and not be too prescriptive because there are so many points of view in this issue. So, you know, people don't normally 
see economics and environmental concerns in the um, same sphere, um, but do you believe ERA is inclusive of those who advocate for limits to growth and for people who have environmental-based concerns such as um, sustainable population yeah. Australian members or listeners to yeah. this podcast? It's, look, it's a strong uh, area of concern. I personally, when we talk about limits for growth, will quickly inquire into growth of what? Mm. Growth of human wisdom and intelligence? Growth of you know, houses or growth of what? Let's discern because sometimes we might be misguided into believing the sole purpose of human existence is to participate in an economy. Make stuff, consume stuff. And that kind of wraps it up. Whatever else you do is kind of Peripheral. sort of whatever. It's just a <laughs> private affair. It doesn't matter. There are things that really matter belong in the economy. And I would question that. And I know that ERA would say, well, the economy is to serve, serve human society, serve our needs, serve our concerns. How does it best do that? Well, to, to understand that, when I say, well, what are our concerns and our needs? Are they just about being able to consume more stuff? Then, of course, we've got a problem. If they're about other things, and I think the COVID crisis and the lockdowns, all the rest of us have helped many of us reflect a little bit more on what matters. You can't go out shopping. What are you going to do? Oh, maybe I'll read a book. That's not a very small carbon footprint from reading a book. And that's a kind of growth maybe in the reader. I know that might sound a bit trite, but the issue of growth, different types of growth have different impacts. And most people would say, well, I don't want to grow much more, but I do want the kids to grow. Falling for slogans is not really helpful, in my view. And it tends to be what I call it creates noise and static that gets between people and the opportunity to unpack an issue and explore it more directly. And equally, the, you know, the growth issue depends a bit where you are. You could say, I think Australian, the per capita carbon footprint is really high in Australia, like almost the highest in the world. Okay, there are certain conditions that influence that. Okay, technology, distance between places, etc., and just the resources that we've allowed ourselves to, to use. But if you look at a very poor country, let's say, it wouldn't be for us to start telling them how to start constraining their impact on the environment. It's a major problem. The Pacific Island countries that cut their forests down to produce furniture for us, for IKEA or for whatever, say, well, who's at fault here? We're kind of colluding with the bad behaviour and the way we behave, we collectively, is highly wasteful. Because we know it. We've got an economy that prides itself in producing, mass producing stuff that breaks, that you can't repair. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. If a 12 year old children were allowed to discuss this, they would come to the conclusion immediately. But we've got all these clever economic theories that say, well, if the market decides it makes sense, so it must make sense. Speaking of built-in obsolescence, yes. <laughs> this computer is currently running through power at the moment because it did have a battery. Oh, yes. The battery ran out. Got it. I tried to get a replacement battery. Yes. I talked to, I think I've talked to about 200 people. Wow. Who sent me replacement batteries. That didn't work. Gosh. And then I called them back, had to take photos and videos and had to call other photoshops get other people involved and there was just this general feedback from society of how dare i 
get a replacement battery. Oh, you're cheating. <laughs> Honestly, yes. what am I thinking? Yes, with that dinosaur. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think This three-year-old yeah. dinosaur. Yes. <laughs> mm. I, I think imagine what it would take. There are some countries that see the social environmental question as central. And those who follow what you might call the Anglo-Saxon American model, whose markets are central, and whatever they turn out, that's to be followed. Um, those that push back against that, of course, are sinning against the free market ideology to say, no, we're just going to make rules that limit what you can do. If you package something, you take the packaging back. If you pollute, you clean it up, you know, whatever the case may be. And there's we're an intelligent species. We could make up all sorts of rules that say every phone must have a removable battery so you don't have to chuck it away. Or that the, the parts can be dismantled, recycled, etc. All these, you could regulate it. You could simply say, there's a rule. Of course, it offends the free market who would have all sorts of arguments about how it's imposing something. It's not, you know, it's interfering with our freedom. We only got this massive creativity because we can go out and exploit and pillage. Um, but of course, it's madness, absolute madness. I happened to come across the carbon footprint information on the carbon footprint of an iPhone. And they assessed it by giving it, I think it was a three-year cycle, all, the, all that happens in the extraction of the materials, the manufacturing, and then the usage. It was about 80 kilos of carbon for each iPhone. And they sell a quarter of a billion in a year. How many kilos of carbon footprint is that? And we allow, we, we simply say, that's okay, until the house starts burning. We think, oh, shoot. And that's where we're at. The house mm -hmm. is burning. It causes, of course, great distress, rightly so. Angst, particularly what I'd call the younger generation who can look on at the adults who've come before and said, that's all okay, thinking, what's wrong with you? You could say, if you were a, a psychiatrist from another planet looking in, there's something wrong with these people. They need treatment. They're just blindly damaging themselves and the environment because they're so attached to a theory is so compelling still that I should be able to do what I want. What happens to the neighbour, not my problem. That's a little bit where we've come to, which is not wasn't always the case. We're at the summit now. Well... Are we <laughs> down the trough instead? <laughs> we, that's right. If we sunk into the gutter... I just wanted to talk about you mm. for a minute, if that's okay. Sure. <laughs> just curious of what... Was your journey into looking at alternatives to the current mm. economic system and what is one aspect about Australia's economy that you would like to see changed if you had to pick and what would you replace yeah, it with? That's a tricky one. Well, my, I'm not quite sure how what sort of slowly galvanised in me. I've always, I mean, I did do some economics at university, but I never was overly impressed by the content, but I've always been interested in, you say, more broadly societal processes and how we conduct ourselves and this issue of money. From reading the various things, I've been increasingly inspired to understand this money question because it's so crucial to how we conduct ourselves. And of course, economics, a lot of it is kind of wrapped around the question of money. Money makes the world go round. Money makes our thinking go round, but it, sometimes it's round and round to nowhere. But it, it is so essential that we grasp this money issue. So but I could say it's just been, well, it's not years of wandering in the desert. That's not the right picture. 
But um, priorities kind of settle. But I have a pretty broad lot of interest. I've got a lot of interest in what you might just call general human social development, organization development, how do, how do things happen? And I've been part of a number of organizations and watched the issues they confront and how they tend deal with them. And that interests me a lot. So you could perhaps, or I might say, that the development question is at the core. The means or the context for that development are, are of course, our environment, and that includes our economy and everything else. And because the economy has become such a, it's almost like it's the only thing we governments talk about. What's the impact on the economy? Jobs, 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 debts, jobs, debts, jobs, and so on. What about an indicator that's not about how much economic activity happened, but how much interior development happened for human culture? You know, how you measure, I'm not quite sure. But if that were a question, are we becoming more civilised, more um, capable in dealing with conflict, more culturally aware, whatever? One could list a whole lot of ideas or indicators because if they were our priority, we'd start thinking quite differently about our conduct. But they've kind of all been sidelined. And now the daily concern for so many people is go shopping, can I get it on special, what's in the bank, I've got nothing in the super, whatever, all these things, I'm not saying for everybody, but for many people, the economic interactions kind of shape the thinking and the mind. They become the concern. And it's, it's what's happened to us? <laughs> I think you, know, you look back to the cultures when they produce cathedrals or whatever you think, well, if they thought, well, how much is that going to cost? Well, they're going to tell you how long the shareholders won't fund that. You know, it takes yeah. like 100 years to produce the cathedral. I mean, they wouldn't do it, but they had different priorities. I think I read somewhere <laughs> that the number one reason why couples break up is because of financial concerns, which, you, you know, it's uh, started to interfere with <laughs> our interpersonal relationships in a big way. Personally. Well, there's lots of things that cause stress, but money is a bit of an indicator, I think, because with it comes the question of security. If you're feeling insecure, you tend to be more reactive, perhaps. You have less time or inner space to be calm. Whereas if you're secure in your existence, you make better choices, you reflect on things more. And I think the pressure question, those concerns which, of course, is part of gain of how our society conducts itself. It says if you've not got a job, uh, you start to feel unworthy. And if you want to join the rest of society, you blooming well, you know, find something. So you already start to stigmatise people. And people might not have a job for different reasons. They might be lazy or they might have health issues. They might have bad luck or whatever. Who knows? A whole mix of things. So what we do to people when we say the only purpose for your existence is to participate in the economy then you're worth nothing outside of it. Again, I think it's for everyone to examine for themselves what their values are, but society as such promotes consumption. What do we see? The billboards everywhere. Do we really have to see it when we're driving on the freeway? I mean, do we really need that? What's wrong with us? I mean, you can't, you're not allowed to look at your phone, but you're allowed to look at a billboard and crash your car. Yeah, I do think about that. <laughs> but it's, you know, I, I just... But the question, what's wrong with us? We've got the world we created. Don't blame anybody else. We've done it. You look at the wisdom of nature. I mean, I'm not sure if the, if the birds and the cats and the whatever, or the animals could look on and reflect on our performance. They might say, clever, aren't they? 
as the rivers are polluted and the, you know, and all the nonsense that goes on and people playing video games all night. I think, really? Is that kind of what it's come to? All this evolution through the ancient cultures and so on, European history and all the rest of it. So a knife for Ephesus and a knife for achievements. I, I, I don't want to be harsh on any particular group, but I know it can be entertaining and all the rest of it. But it's a little bit of, well, what's really our purpose? Can we articulate a human social purpose that reaches beyond economic performance? And I think the sooner we start to do that, the better, because it then starts saying, okay, well, what type of society do we want this economy to serve? But we've kind of got it the other way around at the moment. Well, I know a good purpose for everyone. They can join ERA, can't they? Indeed. (laughs) So let's wrap this up. Well, I would say for anyone who's interested just generally in social economic questions, ERA is a great resource to dip in. You can go to any post from the last 10 years or any ERA journal. Members get a little bit of preferred access uh, to some things, but otherwise it's open slather and it's a very easy website address era.org.au. There we go, and you run events, you run a, you run a few We do join what we can to uh, involve people, have presentations, conversations, discussions. We happen to do them here at the joinery um, because ERA's got its little base here with the Conservation Council. But, of course, they could happen anywhere. And in a certain sense, it doesn't need ERA to call events. But an organisation can be a helpful form or structure that people can join together in and say, well, look, this, this, home, this is a home for us. We find interesting information. We have good discussions. And where we can, we will try and network and influence people. And I would say that not on its own, certainly, but the thinking and the concerns that ERA has carried for all these years are becoming increasingly visible or available within broader society. Well, Bernard, I could listen to your wisdom for hours, but unfortunately <laughs> all good things come to an end, including our current economic system. So, <laughs> Indeed, all things will pass. Yes. Indeed. Yeah, just us, George Harrison. All yes. right, thank you. You're <laughs> thank welcome. you so much for your time. You're welcome. Welcome back to PGAP. Um, I've got the absolute amazing honour to be talking with um, Zoltan Bexley. Now, Zoltan, um, I have been really impressed by your opinions and your knowledge on social media. So I'm really looking forward to (laughs) um, digging that a little bit more in person. How are you? Thanks for having me and thanks for inviting me. Firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background um, and your interest in economics and in particular post-growth economics and how that's all uh, come about. I was born in Romania as a Hungarian minority person and we ended up leaving when I was around 20 from the Ceausescu regime, which was uh, untenable for us in the end. Once we came to Australia, I... uh, not being an English speaker at all, took a couple of years doing not much, but then I ended up um, enrolling into university uh, in, a, in an arts course. That is something that I've never finished. 
it turned out that uh, the field I've chosen was not something I would want to do. I was an art student, um, anthropology and communications slash media studies person, and um, I could just not imagine myself working in so-called professional environment. I'm a, I'm a woodworker, I'm a hands-on person. I always wanted to be a furniture maker. And so after, after about five years, I decided, well, that's enough, and I uh, became a car mechanic. And from then on, I've done, uh, what haven't I done? Uh, many manual jobs. I like these things. I like making things. And I like reading things. As for economics, um, I used to run a picture framing shop in the town of Woodend. And I opened it about 10 years ago, around the time when the Gilad uh, government got a slim minority. I was just watching how things are going downhill, and I did not understand it. I really didn't understand. I didn't know anything about economics, apart from whatever I was reading in the newspapers. Once Tony Abbott uh, got elected, things went downhill very, very quickly. All the newspaper articles were saying the economy is great, and we are paying back the debt, and everybody should be uh, reaping the rewards. And I was observing that the opposite was happening. One day, I uh, came across an article written by a former uh, chair of the Federal New York Federal Reserve, uh, interestingly called person, Beersley Rummel. And he spelled it out in 1946, mind you, that uh, taxes do not pay for government spending. I was just amazed. and. I had a look who posted it, and it was a person called Warren Mausler, who ended up t turning uh, out to be the founder of uh, modern monetary theory. I had a look, and I thought, well, that, that makes a bit of sense, and it makes absolute sense when the commentators on the mainstream media were saying one thing one day, and the complete opposite the other day, and they were expected to believe to be believed so that's how i started my reading and study of economics yeah and um in this podcast on pgap we you know really do want to get a, a variety of um, perspectives uh into this too and i've um, often find that um you know although it's so easy to go to the nearest academic <laughs> for a perspective as you've said they're often very um tired by the end of the day and certainly um post-growth economics is is something that you know everyone should be involved in and understand how a future survivability depends on it um from your perspective zoltan what are some of the main broader problems to the current business as usual growth based economic paradigms we're currently in uh, using the australian experience as a case example uh, where do i start there's, there's so many things to say about this once i got to read MMT people like Bill Mitchell and Stephanie Keltner, they sort of had references to other people whom I found a lot more interesting, who are not even MMT people. Some of them are economists, but most of them are anthropologists, something I have studied at university. 
MMT is a lens. It's a way to view things. It's not something that you do. It's not a policy imperative. It's apolitical, but you have to think through a particular lens and view the world in a world of different possibilities. The natural world has its limits. Everything else is dependent on the natural world. So while everybody's talking about money, it is everything else we should look except for money. Money should be the last thing that we should be looking at. The way you look at uh, policy proposals and then once you realize how the monetary system works and the central banking works and blah, 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 which you learn from MMT, you view the world very differently. You see a policy proposal and you see, nah, this is put together uh, using backward counting. Why do they suggest this number? Why? You know, it doesn't even make sense. I don't want to slag off any political party because that's not, not, what, that's not what this program is about. But I got into a, an argument the other day with somebody who was praising one of the policy proposals about let's build a million houses. And that will solve every problem. And I thought to myself, I don't think these people know what they're talking about. Why would you build a million houses? Don't we have enough dwellings? I think we do have enough dwellings. The problem is not that we, it's not a supply side problem. It's a distribution problem. If you want to uh, tackle housing affordability or homelessness, you don't start building new houses for every one of those people. You want to make sure that the, that the people who are holding or hoarding a portfolio of uh, properties make it very difficult for them to do so. So instead of building something, maybe you should impose a bunch of taxes and, and you should remove another bunch of uh, tax advantages for them from those people. Because mindlessly building another million uh, homes reminds me of the ghost cities of China, which they are demolishing at the moment. So what you have to think about is not, I want to go to the shop, but I only know the way if I start from my gate and then have to turn right. And then at the, at the corner, I have to make a pirouette and then turn left and go to the shop. And what if there is a fallen down tree in, on the road? Then what do you do? wait until somebody comes and removes it for you or you decide if it's impossible or maybe you can just walk around it or you can choose another path what i'm observing is that everybody is so locked into this neoliberal paradigm that nobody is able to think clearly outside the square some of the solutions are so much more elegant and so much more uh, affordable in the terms of uh, real resources than making concessions to big business. We are basically beggars at the rich rich people's table. We don't have the courage to just go, no, 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 no. I don't think you want to eat all that. And I don't think you want to feed all that stuff to your dog afterwards. And then maybe something he falls off the table, I can have it. Definitely when I read um, Stephanie um, Kelton's book on um, MMT, um, <laughs> my concept of the world just blew open because, you know, you're raised with these certain 
presumptions about taxation, about public expenditure and all those things. And it's like uh, very few of those um, things you talk to believe in economics, which I studied, are actually true. Now, for many people, the housing market is probably the main symptom of the economic system impacting on day-to-day -day life and access to shelter, one of life's key necessities. Uh, I know you touched on this, but what are your observations on what is going wrong here? Is it the fact that there are um, too few people hoarding um, <laughs> too many of the, uh, the available properties? Yeah, that's one of the things. Uh, the other thing is that so-called property development is basically land speculation racket. The new developments are not making most of the profits out of building new buildings or building infrastructure. What they do is making the windfall uh, on rezoning. So what happens really is state governments are being lobbied by landholders or potential landholders, land bankers. They buy up a farm. They may sit on it, they may not. They might try to stack the local council to rezone the, the land. And if that doesn't happen, then they uh, start lobbying the, the planning minister who can override everything. I had a conversation with somebody about a potential retirement village that is clearly zoned out of the town boundaries in the next town called Romsey. According to the councillors, I didn't see the council meeting or the, or the minutes, but uh, they hastily approved it. And then some of the councillors wanted to uh, have another vote on it. Just because the land is there and there is a demand, that doesn't mean that we should plonk something in the middle of the bush for somebody to make a profit. You know, it, it was not like a, like a public, it was a privately run healthcare facility. And the person was indignant that I thought things should not have been voted in favour in the first place. Demand is clearly there, the land is clearly there, so why shouldn't we do it? I said, well, we should have the aged care, but maybe you should think about the fact that aged care is not about a building, it's about the care. And maybe the aged don't want to be uh, housed in a gulag outside of the town. And maybe that paddock should be better reserved for the kangaroos or whatever wildlife is still left there instead of plonking a tear slab monstrosity over there. So somebody can save a lot of money. Somebody else can make a, a motta on, uh, on the rezoning and everybody is happy except for the aged and the wildlife. One of the things about the housing in Australia is about the concessions made to uh, property holders. The second one is about the racket being the rezoning business, what I call it. And the third one, the biggest drivers of uh, housing prices in, in this country are the banks. One of the economists that I have come across uh, spinning off from MMT is a fantastic person called Michael Hudson. Somewhere he wrote that, I will never forget this, uh, house worth no more and no less than a bank is willing to lend against it. And when I read this, I thought about it, and then uh, serendipitously, uh, an ad came onto my screen where the ANZ Bank suggested that I should download this app, which gives you an instant appraisal. Like the bank doesn't know the house, you don't know the house, 
Nobody talked to anybody, but this is how much the bank is willing to lend against their property. It's obviously pushing its own cart. If the house is worth 600,000 or 500,000 or 100,000 or $5, it's up to the bank to decide how much it's willing to lend against it. It doesn't matter how much the vendor wants to uh, receive for it. Unless you are paying cash, you're getting a bank loan. And if the bank decides that that house is not worth 600, but only 200, because that's how much I'm willing to lend against it, that's how much the house will end up being worth. Simple as that. I, I remember um, you explained that, I think, um, on a Facebook page a few few days ago when I responded to Dan Andrews saying, oh, wow, there are going to be, we're going to increase first home buyers grants. And you made the point where that just, you know, encourages the banks to then decide on higher house prices. So we're kind of back at square one again. Is, is that... Is that a fair summary of what you're trying to say? Or oh, that, that is that is part of it. And the other, then the other part is that every government contribution as a first home buyer scheme mainly, but there are other schemes that are just treated as an as a price add-on by the real estate agents. There's empirical evidence for it. So as soon as the government announces that you know we are going to give twenty-five thousand dollars for a first home buyer the price of that particular property has been just upped by that amount of money. Somebody's paying for it, but it's free money for the vendor. So what needs to change structurally and how would you change it if you're leading the country? What would you change first and how? Oh, God. I would... <laughs> Where would you start? <laughs> no, I would have a bigger agenda than Whitlam had. <laughs> I would start with uh, probably not reforming, but rebuilding the electoral system from scratch, because that is the biggest racket that driving this, this destruction in this country. How is it that the Greens, for example, have 10% of the vote for one seat in the lower house? The National Party has between something between 4 and, and 5% of the national vote, and they have 10 seats. That's a change of government. We have to somehow break this duopoly because they are somebody said the other day they are the red and blue colored wings of the same flightless bird the two major parties so we need something like uh, at least proportional representation but you want to replace uh the word politician with decision maker you know they call themselves politicians they're just delegated decision makers and somebody a couple of years ago put the question of sortition to me like the jury system in the criminal law works on the basis of sortition and i thought about it and i thought oh well, that's a dumb idea why should some incompetent idiot decide what policies uh, we should be pursuing and i had to second guess myself and thought about it well we have those kind of idiots who don't know anything and, and, and they are running the country on our behalf, except they can be bribed. Whereas the jurors are very, very se uh, carefully selected. They do one job and then you get a second set of juror for jurors for another case. They don't formulate policy. They vote yes or no. So I thought, all right, well, 
maybe we could have uh, a sufficient system for at least the legislative assembly. But then we can we could have direct democracy or I think maybe we should ban political parties because the corruption is obvious. Everybody is going on about, ah, we need a federal ICAC. And I was watching the ABC program, uh, The Big Deal, last night, and they finally said something that I thought for a long time. These ICAC uh, bodies are investigating illegal things. For example, uh, Gladys Berejiklian is being investigated, but that's chicken feed. If, if you want an ICAC system, we should have an integrity commission rather than a corruption commission because corruption is defined by the government or whoever sets up the body. You know, if there is no money exchanging hands or, or blah, 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 that's fine. Well, that's not how the political system works. One thing I would change is the political system. I would probably start rationing national resources and setting uh, waste caps. The Chinese are doing it, except it's reported differently in the Western media. Uh, they have blackouts, they have energy shortages. No, what they're doing is they are setting different regions or cities caps. And if you're running a factory and you are and you used up your quota of energy, then you stop. The power is turned off. Businesses are very good at working within boundaries. And this is one of the boundaries that we should set. If we are serious about uh, sustainability, we should set caps. We don't need market mechanisms like privatization of the atmosphere. That's what I call uh, carbon taxes. If you, are, if you can pay for it, you can pollute. How does that stop pollution? It stops pollution for the poor. And then it doesn't stop pollution for the rich, which then they pass on to the onto their customers who they're poor. We really have to think about measures other than fiscal policy, market mechanisms. Uh, we just tax uh, plastic bags. No, no, no. You ban plastic bags. We don't recycle plastic bags into park benches. Manufacturing is the making of waste. Every piece of manufactured good is waste. Only the longevity of that thing differs. A plastic bag is only one use. The pyramids of Giza have been standing there for 4,000 years. Eventually, they will collapse. One day. They were a very good investment of carbon and energy. But we have to use legislative measures, regulatory measures, instead of market mechanisms. That would be my third change. The pyramids of um, in Cairo are now getting in the way of outer suburban development. <laughs> so they might have to be knocked down for more apartments sooner rather than later. So now, Zoltan, I administered the Sustainable Population Australia Facebook page, and I've noticed you on a couple of occasions um, checking us on uh, sometimes some of our economic claims. So, yeah, um, th thank you for that. Did, did you have a few ideas on your position on the vexed issue of population, particularly in Australia where rapid population growth is seen as a boon for economic growth and as a panacea for the perceived ageing demography crisis? It is a really difficult and vexed issue. From a sustainability point of view, the problem is world population, not population within a certain country. 
I also recognize that, well, first of all, I'm an immigrant, part of an immigration problem. So I shouldn't be a very, uh, the biggest hypocrite here, but I, but I will be the biggest hypocrite because there's a drive, a conscious drive to increase population beyond sustainable levels, at least for the time being. And they do it for two reasons, cheap labor and more customers. Let's not forget the most, more customers. I think that is more important than a cheap labor because what they're, what they're in fact doing, they're trying to vertically integrate every essential service from food production to energy production, to distribution, to um, transport. They're all vertically integrated. So what they do is they destroy everything around them and then they corner the market, but then they need more customers because they are not necessarily more efficient because the externalities are not priced into their business models. It doesn't really matter how much carbon they emit, it doesn't matter how much water they use because it's all free. Nobody's charging them for that. But they need more customers. Once they have more customers, then they need more cheap labor, not the other way around. For example, the supermarket duopoly. Most people don't realize it, but they have basically a license to control the fresh food market. But basically what they say, you either produce for one of those two, or you don't produce at all. And they tell you what to produce. They have to look like this. They have to weigh this much. That's it. They're bulldozing, you know, mountains of bananas into, uh, into compost because they are not the right shape or not the right size or whatever. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. The little businesses that they would be able to sell this are unviable because they are temporarily killed by price. And once they moved in, once they killed every opposition, they will increase the price. That's when they need more cheap labor and more customers. And that's what immigration is all about. It's an imperative driven by big business. So I'm against this kind of immigration. As for world population, that is a really difficult issue. We all know it is harmful to grow the population. How do you stop it? What do you do? You can't just go, all right, well, take a ticket. Shot, not shot. <laughs> no, you can't do that, you know. Well, you can do that, but it's unethical. You know, you don't want to do that. So what do you do? Basically, I think the only thing that we can do is slowly degrow it by education and basically raising the living standards in the poor countries. Once you reach a certain uh, prosperity, evidence shows that population doesn't really grow, even declines. Oh, thank you so much for that um, perspective, Zoltan. Um, before we wrap up, was there anything else that you wanted to quickly uh, cover that you feel you haven't yet? Perhaps one thing, or maybe two things. Economics is not about money. That is called finance. Economics is managing the distribution of available resources. It's got nothing to do with money. Money is only a tool to uh, determine how those things are divided up between who has claims on real resources. Just because somebody has a lot of money, that doesn't mean they own the resources. Until they acquire the resources, that's when they will take control of them. 
really wealthy people like the Bezos of the world or the Musk of the world or whatever, you know, they have what I call paper wealth. Their wealth is all equity in a stock market listed company. Those fortunes change really quickly. History has proven that. Uh, my own family has experienced it at some stage. The other thing I would say, when a politician proposes something, don't just go follow the money because that is so-called economics 101, which everybody uh, thinks they understand, but they don't really understand. It's not about the money. When you see a policy proposal, you want to see what is it that you want to change? Is that the best way to change it? Have you thought about a different way how to change it? Don't just go, ah, oh, we want, you know, one million homes built. Ah, oh, well, we can do that. And what's okay. So what is it that you want to achieve with it? Do you want to end homelessness? And you want to charge a homeless person $300,000 for, for a new house? Well, where the hell, they, where the hell would they get it? Where does a, a woman fleeing uh, domestic violence get $300,000 to move into a house? No, that's, that's a ridiculous proposition. Why do you want to own a house? We own our house here, or we own equity here. But it is only because there was a reason for us trying to dip our toe into the property market about 15 years ago. And it was because it was the third property that was being sold while we were tenants. And we were sick of moving and trying to find a new tenancy. If you have secure tenancies for reasonable prices, they don't have to build more homes. You don't have to own a home in the first place. People just want to live somewhere it doesn't really matter who owns the house. I don't think people should own land. I think it's a ridiculous concept. We belong to the land, not the land. The land doesn't belong to us. Just because you put a fence around it doesn't mean anything. When I'm dead, the fence will be there and I will, I will not be there. It's ridiculous. That's all. <laughs> well, I think that's a fantastic note to end on. Zoltan. Thank you so much. Um, and it's been a great discussion as well. And uh, for me as well, even though it's virtual, it's been great to finally meet you in person as well. Thank you, Michael, likewise. Welcome back to Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and we first heard from Bernard Thompson from Economic Reform Australia in Adelaide, followed by Zoltan Bexley, freelance economic critic living in Woodend, Victoria. Note that both Bernard and Zoltan have shared their own opinion that may not be totally reflective of ERA as a whole. Disclosure, disclosure. This episode will be broadcast on the waning end of the COP26 talks, hopefully. Well, I'm sure the results of the COP26 will be too little too late and that our federal government will promise yet more empty platitudes per usual. <sighs> this is a timely reminder that a transition to a greener world will not be achieved by green growth rearrangements of the Titanic deck chairs. Rather, it requires a radical transformation of our economic system so that we're not continuing to produce an exponential increasing number of products but exponentially exploding numbers of our own species to fill the pockets of an exponentially shrinking number of billionaire sociopaths. 
Economics should be understood by everyone and anyone, and we remain ignorant at our peril. In the meantime, I wrote a COVID statement on behalf of Sustainable Population Australia as a call out against the post-COVID return to Big Australia push ASAP, whilst outlining what a post-COVID future could look like instead. An extract of the statement was published by my friends at Independent Australia, as well as Dave Gardner's overshoot blog on medium.net. So after 18 episodes and around 21 interviews at last count, I am taking a small sabbatical to replenish my energy from 10 months of car mileage, recording logistics, editing, and promoting a new episode every two weeks. <laughs> I'll be taking the time to update the artwork and to launch my new website. I do so many things in so many different realms that I thought it was time to have a depository, or some might call it suppository, of my work in the one place. In the meantime, please share and promote PGAP if you feel so called. There is no greater power than a word of mouth. Well, other than money, which none of us have because the oligarchs took it all away so they can fly into space. Review and rate PGAP on Apple Podcasts and share your favourite episode across the not-so-socialist media. I'll see you all again in a month or two. Until then, folks. Until then.